Hi friends, welcome back to the You Don't Wanna Know, the podcast. Happy St. Patty's Day, everybody. I hope you got the green beer just absolutely flowing. I have done nothing of the sort yet, but we'll see what happens. Who knows? Who, who knows what this magical night can entail? Maybe I'll see a leprechaun. Honestly, I probably will if I go out. There probably will be a leprechaun somewhere. But enough of that. Guys, I've watched so many movies since we've last talked. It's been amazing. And honestly, I'm just going to keep watching more. This is like the best month for watching movies. It's so incredible. I'm so happy about it. Um, Let's see. So it started off with Creed 3, which is awesome. I think I liked Creed 2 a little bit more, but it was great. If you don't know, the Creed movies are kind of like the next level or like the next chapter, I should say, of the Rocky movies. It's Apollo Creed's son, Adonis Creed, who goes on to be a boxing legend, essentially. And Rocky kind of helps him along the way a little bit here and there, not so much in the last movie. But it's really awesome. And I I always think like, okay, it's a boxing movie. He's going to go against his biggest challenger and then they like somehow make another one. And every time it's like, okay, yeah, that wasn't a bad idea. That was great. So I'm always very surprised. I don't know if they're going to be able to do another one or maybe like his daughter will become a boxer. I don't know. It's very unclear, but it was really good. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Very action packed, very intense, but just absolutely good. I think I cried in it, but (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you guys. I get emotional with movies because... I just got sucked in like so, so, so strong. So that was the first one. Very good. And then I saw Cocaine Bear. Horrible. (laughs) I'm sorry. I took a long pause because I just, I wish I could get that time back from my life. I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, I remember thinking like, this is ridiculous. Who came up with this? So it's based off of a real story in the sense of cocaine was dropped in a bear ate it. And that's about it. Everything else is kind of like them running wild and making up a bunch of stuff. So it was just ridiculous, like absolutely ridiculous. The things that they said in the movie, it was like, was that necessary? Like, I don't even, I can't, I can't, I don't want to like spoil it if you guys go see it. But I was just like, this detail that you're telling me is stupid. It's not necessary. And it just makes you look like an idiot. I don't know. I'm sorry that I'm just hating on it so hard, but I just, I hated the movie. I literally went to the bathroom so I could miss a part of it because it was that bad. So then the next movie, and I think you guys will like this one, I got to see Scream! Uh, five? Five, I think. Oh, so good. Loved it so much. Loved that Kirby came back. It made me want to rewatch all the movies because... It was just so good. And (laughs) the whole time I was like, oh, I bet it's this guy. Because I just, I love, (laughs) and everyone else hates it, but I love guessing movies. And I'm like, oh, I bet it's this guy. It's definitely this guy and this guy and this one and this one and this one. And then at the end, I was like, I told you, I told you it was that person. And my boyfriend just looks at me. He's like, dude, stop talking. I'm trying to watch the movie. So it was, it was just so good. It was so fun. Um, as I should say, as fun as murder can be, I guess. And also the cast or the characters are extremely indestructible. 
<laughs> because somehow this one dude survived some nasty stuff. But I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to ruin it. You'll have to watch it on your own, but definitely watch it. I don't really think you need to watch the fourth one to have it all make sense. But I mean, you might as well just watch all of them. I don't know if I told you guys this story, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating it. But it's like one of my favorite stories. When I was in eighth grade, I had this sleepover. We were all watching the Scream movies downstairs. And I went upstairs to get a snack. I was at the fridge. And the way the kitchen works is the fridge faces the wall. And to your almost like immediate right, like if you look right at like 10 o'clock or whatever, like the time um, to like where you're looking, there's a hallway and I hear a noise and I'm like, it's Ghostface. He's about to come get me. And then I would like rationalize them. I had like, no, you're being stupid. You just watch scary movies. It cannot be Ghostface. And I'm just looking over there and all of a sudden I see a black robe and I'm like, yep, that's Ghostface. I'm done. This is it. This is how I die. I, I'm completely unprepared. I have no training for this. And I see my mom walking down the hallway with this black blanket draped over her. Not because she saw, she knew that we were watching that movie, but because she was cold. So she inadvertently scared the living daylights out of me. It was hilarious. I think I cried a little bit. But wow, that was like the most coincidental thing that has ever scared the poop out of me in my life. So I hope I didn't tell that story yet. I hope that was fresh for you guys and you guys thoroughly enjoyed that. But I don't know. The next movie I'm so excited to see is Shazam. Great movie. First one was so great. It's so funny. I found that movies that have people like quote unquote switching bodies are hilarious to me. I love Freaky Friday. You will never beat Freaky Friday. Oh my gosh. Jamie Lee Curtis is just amazing. I love her so much. Not just because of Halloween, but she's just a fantastic all-around person and actress. But she's great in that movie. And as an adult, I realized that I don't I didn't appreciate them enough because I'm like, oh, Lindsay Lohan was so funny. No, that was that was Jamie Lee Curtis being incredible as Lindsay Lohan. And then there's White Chicks, which is probably my favorite movie. One of my like top absolute favorite movies. So funny. I forget that it's those two guys, Marcus and someone. I don't remember the other character's name, but I don't know. I don't know their names in real life, but they're so funny as those blonde girls. Brittany and Tiffany, I think are the character's names. I don't know anyone's real name and this will be a running theme. I don't know anyone, any actor's real names except for like Jamie Lee Curtis, I guess. <laughs> And then Hot Chicks is so funny. Like, I could just keep naming, like, the new one with um Vince Vaughn. I just love movies where, like, adults have to pretend to either be, like, a, like when Jack Black and Jumanji had to pretend to be that teenage girl. Like, just oh, so funny. So funny. Jumanji. There you go. Another one. So, <laughs> any movie that you can watch like that is always really good, I guess, in my eyes. I don't know. I'm just coming to this realization now. But back to my original thing which was shazam there we go i found where i was at so shazam super funny very excited for this next one so i'll let you know how it goes because i am for sure seeing it i am spending all of my money at the movie theater i guess um and then i am almost done with another movie that i will let you know about so stay tuned guys if you don't come for the true crime come for the movie reviews because they are here all right, now, true crime calendar. I accidentally already ripped it, so you guys don't get that nice little noise. But there's the paper. 
Joyce Carol Oates' 1995's novel Zombie is a story of newly paroled sex offender Quinn P., who longs to make a docile and mindless companion out of an attractive young man. He abducts, rapes, and tortures young men performing crude surgeries on their brain in attempts to create his zombie. But one after the other dies. Soon, he is killing just for the joy he gets from it. Remind you of anyone? I'll pause for a second. That's right. If you're screaming it into the, the headphones, into the ether or whatever, you are right. It's Jeffrey Dahmer. Quinn P. and his explosive, excuse me, exploits are based on Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee cannibal, who similar, similarly abducts and rapes young men. Not great. Many of whom he subjects to improv, improv, improvised, improvised brain surgeries and injections. The novel was published af- the year after Jeffrey Dahmer was killed in prison. So, not great, guys, but facts. Jeffrey Dahmer sucked. That's a fact. You cannot argue with that. He was not great. All right. Now that we've gotten all the business out of the way, which was just my fun stuff, we are on to why we really came here. So, let's get uncomfortable. Are we ready? Today, we are talking about the case, the extremely complicated extensive case of the pizza bomber that just goes from layer to layer to layer to layer so this will be a two-part case i hope that's not an issue for anyone i'm hopefully going to be releasing it next week if i have the time some reason this week just totally got away from me but i want to try and publish it in a week so the next monday just so you guys aren't waiting too long because i know that sucks if anyone actually like keeps up with this stuff i wouldn't want to wait either so i'll try and get it out to you as soon as i can but the pizza bomber this story actually like really upsets me every time so there was a documentary made on it and you actually see something that's really hard to watch and i'll explain once i get there but it just it's very upsetting to me But the story starts with a Marjorie Dell Armstrong, originally Marjorie Armstrong. Marjorie was an only child of Agnes and Harold, and they definitely spoiled her because she was their only child. Marjorie started off a very awkward young lady because, like, she grew up just really fast, got tall, kind of awkward, and that sounds a lot like me. I was always, like, the tallest one in my class until about eighth grade. She was really close with her parents and liked to do just like activities with them. She would even like go fishing with her dad, things like that. Her parents were super proud of her though, because she got great grades. She was just incredibly intelligent, great student. But the thing about her was that she would lie all the time. So her parents just had a really hard time with that. They were just not trusting of her because she just would lie like constantly, never stopped lying. She eventually got out of her awkward stage and all the boys started to notice her because she was just stunning, like very beautiful woman. Her eyes were like super magnetic, dark, dark hair, just very pretty. And she had a really awesome uh, musical talent. There was a story of her friend. She met her friend for the first time there um, at this like orchestra thing. And everyone was looking at her because one, she's gorgeous. And two, She just had this great talent musically. I don't remember exactly what she played, but it was just incredible. So she was just like this magnetic person that people were drawn to. She eventually got her master's degree in teaching. She um, kept going to school, though, and got a couple other degrees here and there. When she was 23, 
though, she went to a therapist saying that she was sad because she couldn't have a real relationship. She was actually diagnosed over a couple of years with bipolar, mania, pressured speech, narcissism, a cluster of things. So this was probably in like the 70s, I think. So mental health was still kind of a new thing. So I don't know if they were just like throwing diagnoses out of her, just hoping something would stick. I don't know. But she definitely had some mental health problems that were very evident. Her friends would even notice that she was slowly kind of unraveling. They would even say that she was very intense and she would like call her friends and talk and talk and talk and it would be three hours later and her friends would literally have to butt into the conversation. They wouldn't get a word in, but they would have to butt into the conversation and be Mar- be like, Marjorie, I gotta go. Like I have an appointment. I can't talk anymore. I'm sorry. And unfortunately, like that seems rude, but when you can't get a word into the conversation, that's like the only way she could do it. They could do it. And like I said, they just saw her going downhill more and more. And that was just one example of it. She started to collect things, just like random things. And at first it was stuffed animals. And I was like, oh, you know what? My mom, she collected beanie babies. So that wasn't that weird. She thought that would be worth something someday. And jokes on her, it was not. Never worth anything. Um, Then it was clothes. But then it changed to baby things. But she never had a baby. So that was interesting. And a friend even said that she stopped on the side of the road to pick up things. So everyone was just kind of worried about her. And she went to therapists and doctors and no one really ever helped her that much. But people knew that something was wrong. Sorry, I just shifted a little bit. I'm very uncomfortable in the seat. Her parents would step in anytime she needed help because of like mental problems. And they would give her money because they had a good amount Um, They got her two properties and a really nice car, but she just didn't take care of it at all. They all went to just crap. And you see later on that she was a hoarder. She would only come to her parents for money or if she needed some help or wanted something. Her parents didn't even believe in mental illness, but they knew that she wasn't 100% there. And I think that's actually a quote that that her dad says is that she wasn't 100% there. But they just kept helping her. They kept helping her whenever she needed some money or issues. She couldn't hold down a job. And she couldn't even keep a man in her life because she just couldn't do it. She was just not mentally there in the sense of, like, having relationships. Like she said, she went to the doctor because she felt she couldn't have a real relationship. She was married for a very brief time to a Richard Armstrong. Oh, shoot. I said that wrong. Okay. Her last name is Marjorie Dell. And then she adds to Armstrong. I thought it was the other way around. I'm so sorry. But she was briefly married to him. And then her husband died. He fell and hit a coffee table. So, yeah. That will seem a little more suspicious a little bit farther down the road. But right now, we're just going to leave it. She actually sued the hospital for negligence and won a $175,000 settlement, which is another reoccurring theme in her life. Before he was buried, though, she had asked for his leg bone. Now, we don't know which one, but we know it was a leg bone. In case, she said, in case she can clone it in the future. Now, we don't know if she actually got that leg bone. I'm not going to say no, but I'm going to 
I'm going to just think, no, she did not get that leg bone, to be completely honest. I don't think that that's something that doctors are giving away. Like, I couldn't even get my wisdom teeth. They threw away my own wisdom teeth. They're like, it's toxic. You can't have that. And I'm like, it was in me. It was literally in, I, I made that with my own body and I can't keep it. What the heck? But whatever. So she asked for it. I'm going to guess that she didn't get it. So not only did her first husband die, but there were five other men that she had dated that had passed away. I'm sorry. I'm so uncomfortable. It's so hard to get comfortable on this couch. Okay. Sorry about that. I'm finally comfortable. In 1984, she went on trial for shooting her boyfriend, one of them. Not sure which one. She shot him four times and claimed that it was self-defense. And this is actually kind of sick. She would eventually brag about this to her friends that she got off scotch-free. Also, I realized pretty recently that it's scott and not scotch. I liked the scotch because I thought it was like scotch tape, like got it off scotch tape free, but whatever, scot free. After the trial had happened and there were some other like legal things that happened to her, her parents kind of stepped away from her because they felt like they were aiding in her bad behavior and her bad choices. So they stopped giving her money. Her mom eventually passed away, unfortunately, and left her like a little bit of stuff in like a safety deposit box, but her dad actually wrote him, her out of his will completely because of some other things that um, I'll talk about eventually, maybe in part two, but he actually, so he had this money for her. He was saving it up and he was like, well, what am I going to do? He started giving, giving it away. But, like, not just, like, money. He would, like, get his neighbors a car. I'm sorry. I'm moving my mic so much because I just can't figure myself out right now. Sorry. So, he would, like, if they needed a car, he would do that. If they needed something repaired, he would pay for that. Like, he was a good guy. And he even said he, uh, he, where was I? He wanted to do good things because if you're not doing good things, what are you doing? That was a quote from him. So, he's a great guy. And he wanted to help his daughter, but he knew that... By helping her, he was hurting her. So that's why he was like, you know what? I, I know my neighbors. I know they need, they're good people. They need good things. So I'm going to help them, essentially. So that's kind of a summation of Marjorie Dell Armstrong and everything that's happened to her. Now, on August 28th, 2003, the birthday of the youngest of my clan, my little sister, <laughs> The PNC bank robbery, oh gosh, what does that even mean? I'm so sorry. The PNC bank was robbed by someone. I, maybe I shouldn't record today. I'm just off, I'm on something. I'm off my rocker and on something. Okay, let's try this one more time. <laughs> I'm sorry. August 28th, 2003. And this isn't even funny. This is horrible. The PNC bank was robbed by someone who had the, a bomb around his neck. This is the part that really bothers me. So the robber had this cane and he had, no one could see the bomb, but he had this shirt over this weird thing on his neck. It wasn't like he, I think he was just trying to hide what was under it, but it was so obvious that something was under it because it was like bulging out. So he had this cane and it ended up being like a shotgun disguised as a cane. And he had a like a ransom note, but it was like, five pages or something crazy like that. There was one for the teller, one for the robber himself, and one for the police. And they were all extremely wrong, extremely long. They were also extremely wrong because don't rob a bank. 
extremely long and rambling, but they asked for $250,000. He only got what was in the bank teller's drawer, though, which was about $9,000. The robber was very calm, and it was very odd behavior that you really wouldn't expect from a bank robber, you know? Whenever, well, I've never seen a bank robbery, but like in the movies, it's like, give me all your money, like, hurry, come on, come on, put it in the bag. Just very quick, anxiety, crazy behavior. But he came in and waited in line for like a second. And then he like looked around and he's like, eh, I'm not waiting in line. So he cuts in front and he is like, gives the teller the note. And he took a lollipop from the basket at the bank and ate it which seems so casual. Like, it's like you're literally going to the bank to give money, you know? So that was weird. And he was compared to Charlie Chaplin with his cane and the bag as he left. So just very odd behavior. Once the robber was finished with that robbery, he went across the street to McDonald's and picked up another note. And this was instructions for the the thing he was supposed to do next. So eventually they get to see all this stuff, all the notes, And it's, like, diagrams and stuff like that. And they literally say, like, go across the street to McDonald's next to the mailbox. There's a rock. Pick up the rock. And the notes under the rock just, like, very detailed note. There was even, like, a picture of where the note was going to be. So he picks up the note, gets back in his car, and starts to drive away and gets pulled over almost immediately because it's 2003. The police are on their game, essentially. So they get him. They handcuff him and they see that there is what they think a bomb strapped around his neck, like a collar, a collar bomb. And he was worried that the police or that it was going to go off because he had like specific instructions on how to do it. So the, the police cut away the shirt and they say it looks like a real bomb. So he's handcuffed in the middle of the street, in the middle of these cop cars that are all facing towards him because They're just waiting for the bomb squad. And he's just very casual, kind of sitting on the ground. And it's just so freaking sad. It it makes my stomach feel weird. Like, I don't even know how to describe the feeling I get. But it's just so... I hate it. I hate it so much. That should have been done differently. I feel like they could have done it differently. But, I mean, it's in the past. It's hindsight. But it... That video just bothers me because you can see everything from this day from when he's caught. So he's in the middle and he's just so worried. And the bomb squad, they're hoping the bomb squad's coming. They're just waiting for him. He even asked if he could call his boss because this guy, turns out he's a pizza delivery guy. And he's worried that his boss is going to be wondering where he is. So he literally asks them, can you do this? The police find out later that he had delivered a pizza at 1.30 to a remote location And they kidnapped him and made him do this. They found the pizza ticket for Brian's order. So this guy's name is Brian Wells. They found it and they went to the place where it happened. Luckily, this was a dirt road. So they could see the tracks from his car, his footsteps, assuming bringing the pizza out, and then a struggle. They saw like scuffling feet from the dirt roads. They knew that this, this couldn't have been willing because of the way the footstep pattern was. So while he's sitting in the street, he's kind of talking to them and he says he hears ticking and then he hears a beeping and he's like, are they coming soon? It's going to go off. I can hear it beeping. And then it goes off. 
and it is so hard to watch because I almost, it feels like the cops don't think it's real. I don't know. And because they're so casual about it, maybe versus like if it were, they thought it was real, they would be more anxious, but the bomb goes off and Brian Wells loses his life. And it is so hard because there are news trucks all around this because this is such a public event. The police were making a huge scene circled around him. So there's a video of Brian Wells losing his life. And it's just, it bothers me so much. And unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do to pull that away. But I just, I hate it. I hate the way this was handled and it makes me sick to my stomach. But it was in the middle of the street and newsmen had been seen, had seen it and were recording it, like I said. And unfortunately, the bomb squad arrived seconds after the bomb went off. So they went in and they made sure there weren't any other explosives on him or in his car. And it looked like everything was clear and that there were there was nothing else. So the police find the note while looking for another potential explosive they find all the instructions that he had and they decided to follow it to maybe catch who was making him do this. So they followed the note and it said to go to the side of the road where there was a coffee can and it kind of had like a flag in it to see where it was. And then they go to the next location, which is in the woods. There's like a flag on the tree and they walk towards the tree and way across the field. So it's like woods that line a field way across the field they see this blue van approach them slowly but it's super super far away and it's in the woods so they're not next to the cars but the van kind of gets closer a little bit closer and all of a sudden it stops turns around and drives away see to me I'm like that's the guy why would he be in a van in a field that makes no sense a truck maybe maybe that makes sense barely but I would think get to the car as quick as you can find that person in that car but who and maybe that's what they did but it was just never said or I couldn't find anything that said that so after the van drives away they really don't have anywhere else to go in this scavenger hunt essentially and they start to ask figure out what they're going to do for the investigation so this is where it gets weird because it's on state police territory but there was a bomb so it's AFT as well and because it was a bank robbery it's the fbi too so at first they go back and forth and they're like well it's our case no it's our case and all this stuff like just stupid stuff until they decide that they're going to do it all together and this sounds like a great idea but there are definitely things that happen where you're like hmm were you guys doing like a contest to see who was going to get it solved first and holding back information i hope that's not the case and that's how they didn't make it seem like that's how it was from the way they spoke. But when you hear certain details, you're like, that's what it sounds like. So you don't know. But the FBI decided to search uh, to get a search warrant for Brian Wells home, even though they really didn't think he was involved in this whole thing. They just wanted to check all their boxes. Maybe they would find something that would lead them to another person. So they did. They got a search warrant. They went to his house and they really didn't find anything. He was a hoarder, though, and that is a common theme for some reason, just an insane hoarder. But like I said, they really didn't find anything that connected him to the bank robbery, but they did find that he had 
just a bunch of names and numbers of local prostitutes in the area. And one in particular they found that he liked to visit the most, and her name was Jessica Hoopsick. So the police are kind of dealing with all this stuff. Meanwhile, and I don't know how the timeline lines up, honestly, but the police couldn't do too much with Brian's body. It was more of the bomb squad that had to do it because of the bomb around his neck. So it is very unfortunate the way they dealt with it. They had to take his head off in order to remove the bomb safely. And that was just a horrifying thing. They took it off. They had to take his head off to get the bomb off and then transport him to the coroner. So everyone was just very, very, very upset about that, especially his family. Now, his family describes him as just a nice and quiet man. He had three sisters and a brother, and he still hung out with his mom and would take her to movies, which is so, so sweet. He also had a couple of cats, and sometimes his neighbors would see him hanging outside with them because he just loved them so much. He didn't have a bad bone in his body. He was so kind and almost a pushover, which is unfortunately how he kind of got into the situation. Not that that is like a deserved thing, but people just take advantage of that. And that's very unfortunate. So he got into the situation because he didn't, because he trusted the wrong people. And that's just so unfortunate, but he also likes scavenger hunts. And I think that's kind of another thing that they added to this whole thing to kind of help him calm down and want to do this horrible thing. So everyone that knew him said that he could not have done this. He could not have been a part of this. There's just no way it's not who he is. So let's recap this whole podcast really quickly just to kind of go through it. So a pizza delivery man, Brian Wells, was kidnapped. He had a bomb that was hidden under his shirt, and it, the shirt said, guess. They had, he also had a cane that was a, a shotgun. It was a makeshift cane into a shotgun. And a note that was for a scavenger hunt. This is insane. This is something that you get from a movie and think this would literally never happen. This is too, too much. Honestly, it's too much. But this is what happened. So police are starting to move fast. They're trying to, they're trying to figure out what happened, why this happened. They start scheduling some interviews with people who knew Brian and all this kind of, everyone that's linked to this case essentially. One man in particular was acting very strange, and his name was Robert Thomas Panetti. He was a co-worker of Brian, and he was just getting very nervous after Brian's murder. And he was saying that he was next, and he um, went so far as to ask for protection from the police. But the weird thing is that when they came to interview him, he was working at the pizza shop, and he didn't want to miss his shift, so he asked if they could reschedule for the following Monday. Then August 31st rolls around. That same year that Brian had died, August 31st, Robert Thomas Petty was found dead in Panetti, excuse me, was found dead in his home on Sunday, the day before his interview. So police did an autopsy, of course, to maybe get some more answers about what happened. They found it very strange that he was so nervous and now his life is gone. So they found out that it was an overdose and drugs were very bad in this town at this time. It was the town of Erie, if I haven't mentioned it yet, or the county of Erie, something like that. I don't know. Speaking of that, let's just take a pause for this. So I don't know if you guys remember the um, 
the lo-fi murder, or excuse me, hi-fi murder case that I covered in the podcast, but it was the town of Ogden. And I kid you not, once a week, I see some kind of reference to the town of Ogden, whether it's like a street name or I hear it in the news or I hear it in like a podcast I'm listening to, but it's the strangest thing. And it's kind of creepy, honestly. And then there's like references back to podcasts that I've done too. Like I did, um, I don't even like, there's just so many examples. I can't even like come up with one right now, but it's just really weird, but sorry, back to the, I just wanted to mention that, but back to the case. So drugs were really bad, bad in this town at this time. It could have been an accidental overdose or on purpose. He could have maybe just cracked under the pressure or the guilt that he was feeling and the stress that he was feeling and he just overdosed. And nothing really happened on this, unfortunately. They never really dug into it. I don't know if they got caught up with so many other things that they just saw it as an overdose and just kind of left it at that. But that's all the answers we really have for Robert, unfortunately. So at this point, the police have three theories. Brian did it himself, but like, nah, probably not. Brian was attacked and forced into this, which is kind of what they were leaning to. Or Brian and Robert did it together. So like I said, Brian and Robert, they both worked at the same pizza place. They also gambled together. So the police were thinking like, maybe it could be a way for them to get a little extra money so they could gamble a little bit more. They could steal the money. Or maybe Brian wanted to feed his habit of like the prostitutes like who knows but they really never found any connection for Robert they couldn't figure out what it was that would lead him to this aside from this like very 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 not strong connection I guess I would say I don't know what the great word is for it but it just wasn't a good lead so they start trying to find even more connections like why Brian would do this or the radio station just all this stuff they're just trying to figure out what's going on because everyone just is blown away blown away by this case so their next idea is to look into the pizza shop because it's very odd that Brian got taken and then Robert had that overdose in a very close proximity of time so they find out that someone had quit on bad terms and even threatened the owner So they decided to look at that, and it turns out he just had a solid alibi, and he was taken off the list. Their next move was to publish a picture of the bomb, the device, to see if anyone recognized that handiwork. They also did the cane, and they found out that the cane was loaded, so it was ready to be used. So with the publishing of those devices, they also gave some attributes to look for, some things of their personality of someone like they could see um like that uh, criminal profiling there we go attributes isn't the right word characteristics of these people to see if anyone would fit this from the crime that we found or they found so they said to look for our call in people who have similar traits to this so a handyman weapons collector they would have to be patient deceptive secretive good with working with metal and other kind of guns. So they would have to have like a collection of guns or even multiple cane guns because that was just a very unique thing. They tried to rebuild the bomb to see if there were anything, any like hints or clues that would come from that. And they found that it was very, very, very intricate and it would have taken about a month to make. So that's where that patience comes in. 
there was a lever that could have been pulled. They found this out in the bomb that would have added an hour to the time that Brian had. Unfortunately, he never got to use this lever, but they found out, and I think I say this eventually, that even if he added that time, he would not have enough time to finish the scavenger hunt and give him, get the neck bomb taken off in time to survive. So they were just going to kill him no matter what. Along with the lever, they found out that this was essentially a pipe bomb and it had two timers on it. They also had a lot of red herrings added to the bomb as confusion. So like extra wires, they even put a cell phone in there. So it was really strange. And like I said, they did post the bomb on like the news and stuff like that, but they didn't post the entire bomb. They just showed parts of it because they wanted to keep some information to themselves in case they could use that. Like if a criminal came in and they were like, oh, there were two timers, like I said, saw in the news and... They wouldn't have seen that in the pictures, so they knew that they had some information. So the police really start to dive into the notes that were given for the scavenger hunt and the ransom letters and things like that. Like I said, they did the scavenger hunt. They found that there was not enough time for Brian to complete it and survive. They found that the notes were handwritten, obviously, but they were traced over a typewriter. So the person sat out, sat out a typewriter, typed it out, and then traced it. So again, a very, very, very patient person. It was a very long or a very long couple of notes for, like I said, the teller, the police, the um, robber, Brian Wells. So there was just so much information that they tried to pull from that. And they actually found that there was normal handwriting on the back of a paper and it was like etched in, like they wrote on top of that paper in normal handwriting. And then they used that paper to trace the typewriter notes. So they had like two or three letters that were this person's handwriting, but they never did publish that. So that I found very interesting that they waited and held that information. And I also think that the police didn't tell the FBI about that. So there's a couple of things that the FBI find out later down the line that the police had. They eventually gave this guy or this criminal a name and they called it them the power bomber. And they gave them more traits. They uh, called him frugal, a pack rat, mechanical, and violent by nature, but tries to hide it. So tips just start flooding in, of course. But they never felt like anything was really that substantial. And there was no real physical evidence that came forward. So they knew that someone had to just give something up. They had to find something to move forward. And they had a really hard time finding this because they just felt like they were at a loss, really. There just wasn't anything. Like this was a very well thought out thing because the person was patient. And that's the tricky thing. So on September 21st, 2003, the police get a phone call, 911 call from a Bill Rothstein, age 59, saying that there is a body in his freezer. He did it for a woman. She's very smart. She's very manipulative. And she wanted me to put the body in a wood chipper. But he said he couldn't do that. And the thing that police found was that Bill's house was extremely close to that abandoned radio station where the pizza was delivered to. So the police knew that this was connected to the pizza bomber. 
Now, Bill had similar pers- a similar personality to Marjorie from the beginning. He thought that he was the smartest person in the room, and he actually said that to a police, or excuse me, an FBI detective. He came in, and he's like, I'm the smartest guy in this room. And the FBI agent's like, it's just you and me in this room. And he's like, yeah, I know, and I'm smarter than you. And it was just the weirdest thing, because there was no, like, nothing led to that. He just decided to say it. And the FBI agent, luckily, he's a professional, so he's like, oh, that's what my wife says every day, just, like, joking. So when he called 911, they asked him who the woman in the question, in question, that was being incriminated. And he said that he'll give you that story and my story later. Like, he knew better than the police. Like, oh, you don't need that. You just need to do this. Like, let me tell you how to be a police officer because you clearly have no idea what you're doing and I know exactly what I'm doing. So just another thing that's like, okay, you just think you're better than everyone and you're so much smarter than everyone. Even when he's being interrogated, he sits there like he is with peers, not like he's being interrogated. He's so confident and he's resting, leaning back with his arms crossed, not stressed out in any way, when in reality, he has a body in his garage, in his freezer, And he's being questioned on that. And he's just so relaxed. I don't think he thought he was in trouble. I think he was going to get away with it. Like he was helping the police and he wasn't going to get charged with anything. So Bill was a rich kid. His family had a big, was a big name in that town. They had a, a bottle factory. And he was made fun of for that. And he was being called the dirty Jew, which is horrible. He went to college, but dropped out almost immediately and went into the family business. I think my favorite part about Bill is the fact that he wore overalls all the time. So in every current or at least current for the documentary, like video of him, he was in overalls. And then you see pictures of him and he's in overalls in them too. So I just thought that was kind of funny. He was like in his 20s still. So he was just an overall guy. So whatever who had a body in his freezer, so that's horrible. His friends say that he was a great guy and they couldn't see him being mean to anyone. They even called him a perfect friend. He was very smart, but he wasn't a finisher. So he like didn't finish college. He didn't finish pilot school and a couple of other things. Now get this, guys. He dated Marjorie in the 70s, but his friends did not like her because she kind of had her hooks in him. They said she was nasty and took advantage of him like she could do. That was probably the cat. Like she could do whatever she wanted to uh, wanted to do with no consequences. And they just kind of felt like she was burrowing into Bill's head and basically had complete control over him. They were on and off for so many years and he would fight for her every single time. And he never dated another woman. And like I said earlier, she went on to marry and she dated a bunch of other people and she killed five dudes, or I shouldn't say that. She, the cat is being so loud. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. The um, five of her boyfriends died conveniently, I would like to add, but whatever. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. So this sounds kind of like the traits that they're looking for, if you ask me. In the beginning, those like patience, blah, 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 all those traits. So while being interrogated, Bill says that 
the uh, lady was someone that he knew and he used to date actually she murdered and uh, murdered the guy his name was bill roden and she needed the body moved and he got a phone call from her and he came to her i guess um i think that he was she was like a tenant of his somehow i don't know it was really confusing in the phone call maybe he just said that to say it i don't know but i'm pretty sure she had her own thing so he took the body and put it in his garage in his freezer she wanted him to completely get rid of the body completely like i said put it in a wood chipper just get rid of it and bill said that he just couldn't do it and he was stalling for as long as he could and he finally caved he, he said he was either going to kill himself or call the police and luckily he decided to call the police and it was marjorie's ex-boyfriend or boyfriend however you want to put it james roden the police obviously went to his house and he was also a hoarder so it was really really hard to get anywhere in that house but they eventually got to the freezer and lo and behold there was a dead body of james roden in their freezer on his freezer and they said it was wrapped like beef so very very uncomfortable marjorie was actually in the house when they came to get him she was upstairs and she was just yelling at the police saying that bill is dirty and a liar and he's the one that killed him and she has nothing to do with it so the cops take her in because she's just being crazy and one of the officers smelled said that she had smelled like she hadn't showered in weeks and she was just rambling on about suing how bill's a liar and how he did it and the police just knew right away that she was not mentally okay and they needed to do something to help her she actually started talking to reporters right away and incriminating Bill, saying that he wanted to buy a meat grinder and he was just jealous of her relationship, that he was still in love with her and they had a lot of anger issues. She quotes quoted saying, he couldn't have me, so he wanted me away for life. She also backhandedly tried to pin Brian Wells' death on him. She said as she's being arrested um look into brian wells or something like that or he killed brian wells so i guess that's not very backhanded but she did say that so like i said she would speak to reporters and send letters and all that stuff and one reporter actually started to develop some kind of relationship with her not physical but like a friendship and he honestly was just trying to get information out of her but he was very kind to her so I don't really have an issue with that. It's, uh, I don't know, whatever. Well, you use your own judgment on that, I guess. I'm not going to judge him, but if you want to, that's fine. I'm going to stay neutral on that. So he would talk to her. She would call him and she would start to choke up and say, it wasn't me that killed him. It wasn't me that touched his body and put him in the freezer and like she was kind of crying a little bit when she said that. And she is so smart because that is all true. Potentially, I guess. I don't know if she killed him, but she didn't touch him. She didn't put his body in the freezer. That's true. We know that. Bill said that. He did that. So it's just very smart. But then she would stop crying and start to like speak normal and start to incriminate Bill. So she was just so freaking smart about that stuff. She knew exactly how to talk, exactly how much information to give about this stuff without incriminating herself. So just a very, very, very scary woman. 
So back to um, James Roden. The police brought the entire freezer to the coroner because his body was completely frozen and it took four days to thaw out. They found the cause of death was a shotgun to the head and from the coroner and Bill, they found out that Jim was killed three weeks before the bank heist. And they found this, I think the bank heist, let me, let me pause really quick to get my timeline one second. So the bank heist was in August, August 23rd. Then Robert had an overdose, August 31st. Then Bill called on September 31st. So it was like roughly two months that he was in there. So it took a long time for the body to thaw out, which is horrible. So the next step was to go to Marjorie's house. Bill came with and he kind of walked them through what happened that night. They went upstairs to Marjorie's bedroom and there was just crap everywhere. Again, she was a hoarder as well. So they had to kind of clean everything out before they could even go through it. And they actually found two dead cats in the mix of all her things. Just absolutely horrible. I just don't know how people can live like that. It just, oh, so bad. So while they're trying to clean up Marjorie's house to be able to do that walkthrough with Bill, they start to do some interviews with people that are close to Marjorie and Bill. Now, Adi Menke, I think is how you pronounce her last name, said that Bill wanted to borrow money from Marge, Marjorie to pay off school. And Marjorie said that Bill wanted Jim. Bill wanted Jim gone. And Marjorie would marry him, essentially. So that's what Audie said, Marjorie said to her. So it's just like a, the game of telephone, essentially. Then they interviewed Ken Barnes, who was a fishing buddy of Jim and Marjorie. And um, they also interviewed Agnes Owens. And she said that Jim was very timid and she really just controlled him. They would have their ups and downs, but they were lovey-dovey with each other. But then they said, then Marjorie had told both of them that she wanted to get rid of Jim. So just very, very, very odd. Then there's John Rothstein. Um, That's Bill's brother. He said that Bill lost his parents' money. They don't know how. And they never really questioned it because they felt bad for his brother. They felt like he had so much potential, but he didn't ever use any of it, you know? So they just kind of felt bad and they just let him do his thing. But eventually they... John and his sister did tell Bill that they wanted him to sell their parents' house. Bill had been living there for a long time, rent-free. So Bill had lied to his siblings and said that he put it up on the market for 90 k when in reality, he put it up for $250,000. Does that number sound familiar? Pop quiz. Why does it sound familiar? It's because it's the number that was on the ransom. So they also interviewed Bill's roommate, Floyd Stockton, and he was on the FBI radar because he, I feel like I said that weird, radar, um, because he had some assault cases and Bill accepted money under the table for rent so Floyd could stay under the radar and um, it worked well for Floyd, unfortunately. So his interview, he really didn't give anything because he is a criminal and normally they don't really like talking to police. So they really just didn't get anything from him. He gave very little cooperation to the police. 
So they just kind of let him go, unfortunately. And I mean, I don't think there was any pending charges, but he was just kind of trying to lay low because he had um, done time and he was a criminal. So because Bill was cooperating so much with the police that he was out on bond and just walking free. So he, the, the police eventually get everything like cleaned up in Marge's house and he does the walkthrough to help police understand what happened to Jim. He, just, he describes the scene and there, there is a whole video of what happens. It's very uncomfortable to watch because the, the police are doing their job. They are, but it, it's incredible to watch them do it because the freaking guy that dragged a corpse out of this house that was very, the corpse was very recently murdered is the one that's telling him, telling the police all this stuff. So it's very eerie when you think about it. If you're like an outsider just looking in and you just see this video, you're like, oh, okay, whatever. But if you know that information, you're like, oh my gosh, that is so uncomfortable. So he describes the scene. He walks through it and how he took out the body. He said that he helped clean up afterwards. So it was on the top floor and he had to drag it down, drag Jim's body down the stairs. Um, eventually he also used hydrogen peroxide. He said that he like sprayed it everywhere because Marjorie thought that that would get rid of blood evidence. He replaced all of the stairs because he had to drag them down the stairs and they were all broken and they got blood on them. So he did that. Once the body was down the stairs, he put it into his van and then took it to his house where he also took the murder weapon. Once he got to his house, he put Jim's body into the freezer and he um, cut up or like used heat to melt the weapon into a couple pieces. So what really bothers me about this is that in the video, you can see he's so casual about everything. Like I said before, he it's almost like he's training the police for some reason. Like he's so like, oh, I have to go over this information, like kind of annoyed by it. Like, how are you not catching up with me kind of thing? So it was just really uncomfortable. The detectives ask how he got rid of the blood and with no remorse or excuse me, who got rid of the blood. And he literally just like raises his hand. He's like, I did that. Like, it's no big deal. It's like, you should not be proud of that. Oh my gosh. And I can't even like begin to comprehend how those police officers were just, and the detectives were just so cool. Like not like cool, but like cool as a cucumber in that moment, you know? So the detectives see some scars on his hand when, or on his wrist when he raises his hand and they ask him what that's about. And he says, it's a stupid attempt at suicide. Also, he asks, did you get my note? He's like, it was a stupid attempt at suicide. Did you get my note? And it almost feels like he was bragging when he says it was three pages long. And I stopped. They never mentioned this. And I'm sure other people have thought about this too. But I thought three pages long for a suicide note. I don't know if that's long or not, typically for suicide notes, but the bank notes, there were so many of them and they were so long and rambling. I just wonder if that like perked up the place's ears a little bit like, what? Three pages long, huh? So he specifically said in the bank or in his suicide note that this has nothing to do with Brian Wells. And the police asked, asked him about that. And he said, I just didn't want anyone going off and wasting time on other things when it's 100% nothing to do with Brian Wells. So that was that. He walked him through and got gave him all the information they needed. 
Bill was cleared by the FBI, but the police had a hard time accepting this because he had someone in his fridge for like two months and he was innocent, you know, that just doesn't seem right. And I don't blame him because it's not right. So five months later, in January of 20, I said 2004, Marjorie went to trial and that is where I will leave you for this episode. I'm about halfway through my notes, so this seems like a good time to stop. I will be posting this on Monday. So what I don't even know what day it is, but the following Monday I will be posting it so it's not as long of a wait. Hopefully I can get it done. I will get it done. I'm not going to say hopefully. I will get it done. But if you have any case suggestions, you know it is ydwkpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to see pictures that I will I will be posting on this case, you can go to Instagram, YDWK Podcast. It's also on Facebook. You don't want to know on Facebook. Um, if you have anything you want to share with me, you can email me. Otherwise, thanks for listening, guys. I'll post that episode in a week. I hope you enjoyed your St. Patty's Day. And yeah, enjoy all the movies that are coming out this month. Bye-bye. Hey, Dog Biters, Mike here, host of the Man Bites Dog Podcast. I came here today to give a little promo for our show, but I made the mistake of telling my co-hosts it might be funny if they came in and were mean to me. Uh, well, here's how that went. Hi, I'm Mike Hill, host of the Man Bites Dog Podcast, a game show where I ask you... you, Mike. Okay. That, all right, well, that's unnecessary. Oh, you're unnecessary. Okay. It, I'll do the thing later. <laughs> what do you want us to say? I was being mean, you Oh. Right. That is yeah, true. Right. He was doing what you asked. Okay, thank you. Not my problem. If you have a problem with me talking to you, when you say talk to me, say something mean. I said something mean, and you're gonna be like, oh, don't, don't just do it by myself later. I already deleted everything I wrote. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> Man bites dog. It's a lot like that, except there's less bleeping, and there's a news quiz. Oh God. <laughs>